This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plains FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plainsfm.org.nz. to the February edition of the Shetland and Orkney Connection. It is presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by Community Radio, Plains FM 96.9. The programme is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month and is repeated on Monday, two weeks later at noon. Yes, there's three of us back in the studio today. There's Jan and Helen and myself. Uh, My name's Heather. Now, weather-wise, we've had a lot of rain here in Christchurch this month, but nothing like the storms you have had around the islands. We've seen online the waves crashing into the cliffs and the amazing spray being whipped up by these storms in Shetland and Orkney, going up over the cliffs and across the land. A magnificent sight. Quite a few ferry crossings had to be cancelled because of the bad weather, which is always a nuisance for everyone. Yes. Now for a few snippets from the papers. They hope the weather will be good this summer as Orkney could be in for a record-breaking cruise liner season. It is expected that 209 calls currently booked in will fall as itineraries change as the season progresses. The first liner due to call is the MS Gann on the 24th of March, then the Viking Venus on the 3rd of April. 
The biggest liner will be the MSC Virtuosa, which will carry 6,300 passengers. The other liners carry around 800 passengers. Goodness me. 6,300 is a lot of people. It is, isn't it? a lot of people. Mm. It's yeah, a sudden small town all on a, mm, yeah, I think, on a if, you know, it's a case of it's either a drought or a flood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, a restored naval gun from the HMS Hampshire will stand century outside the Scapa Flow Museum as part of a £4.4 million redevelopment. The gun, now 106 years old, was taken to Aloha for conservation last year after decades of being outside in the harsh sea air beside Scapa Flow. The newly restored gun, a Vickers 3-pounder Mark II quick-firing deck gun, was recovered from the wreck of HMS Hampshire, which was struck by a mine off Marwick Head, Orkney, in heavy weather on the evening of June 5, 1916, and sank within 15 minutes. There were only 12 survivors. Mm. It was with sadness again that I saw the death this time of Alistair Cormack. He and his late wife Anne, who passed away recently, produced the Orkney View, a very interesting magazine full of snippets about Orkney. Hmm. Is the magazine still going here? No, they, they did a hundred um, issues and then they stopped. But oh. I, I've, I've got most of them at home and they were really interesting. Yes. Mm. Oh, that is a shame. Mm. There has been an announcement from the Highlands and Islands Airports Limited that the Remote Towers project has been shelved and air control services across the Highlands and Islands will now be modernised without centralisation. This will be a huge relief to many people who will keep their jobs and to the people flying in and out of these airports. It is good that this long-running dispute has had a good conclusion. And a certain, yeah, a good one, because Mm. uh, people have kept their jobs, yeah. Yes, and the thought of flying in and out with someone (laughs) directing from far away just is not very appealing. Mm. I mean, it does happen in other Mm. places, but... I know, but it's better not to know. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. At least six Shetland churches will be closed and sold off later this year. Over 2022, Tingwall, Wolsey, Goldberwick, Dunrossness... Luna and Outscaries will be closed and sold. Thirteen churches have already been sold or are under offer. A stark picture of falling attendance, reduced income and a shortage of ordained ministers is the problem. I mean, maintenance and upkeep of them, they just can't. No, they can't imagine, you know, with yeah. the um, number yes. of parishioners they have, yeah. Mm. The daughter of a Shetland bus veteran whose ashes were scattered at Luna Vaux said it would be a tragedy if Luna Church was sold. Virginia Child's late father, David Howarth, wrote the Shetland bus and has a memorial stone at the Luna Kirkyard. She said that Luna was such a special place for her dad. Luna House was used as the base for the Shetland bus operation during the Second World War which Mr Howarth took part in as a junior naval officer and later wrote about extensively. This next piece was in the Orkney paper in 1861, over 160 years ago. Giant mummies of Stennis. Ever-increasing interest continues to be felt here in the excavations at the Tumulus at Mays Howe, and no wonder for it was reported in the beginning of the week that two female mummies had been discovered 
and also the skeleton of a gentleman 10 feet long. It was also reported at the same time that the abode of these strange discoveries was about to be put under charge of a keeper so that nobody would see the lions for less than a sixpence. Was there a lion there as well? I'm not just sure, but that's what was there, yeah. Um, there was sort of a dragony thing with a... Um, right. Um, I'm just trying to think of the right word, a knife into it, but uh, yeah, whether they thought that was a lion, yeah. Mm. Seizing the benefit of open time in boats and gigs, in carts and on shanks, everybody has been or is going away to the Termiston, but no one so far as I have heard has been favoured with sight of the lady mummies or the long gentlemen. <laughs> but everyone admits that the old subterranean mansion, with its curious chambers and its inscriptions, consisting of 700 runic letters and a lion, is great, and we hope it will be preserved as such, properly roofed in and lighted from the roof, so as to become a permanent attraction. Oh, well, it is. It's a maze how. Mm. And, yeah, and mm. the runes, I think, were written by the um, Norse, you know, the Vikings. Right, yeah. yes. Very interesting place, yeah. Now, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? It seems that demands for fixed links between some of the islands of Shetland cannot be put aside any longer. The islands considered for links are Yell, Unst, Walsay and Bressy. Based on the Faroese experience, a new tunnel takes about 10 years from inception to build, although construction of the actual tunnel can be completed in under two years. Faroese tunnels have reversed population decline in remote, remote islands while boosting incomes and community resilience. And have you ever seen pictures of these tunnels? I mean, they're not lined or anything, but they're all lit up with coloured lights and they're amazing. Yes. Oh, and they I went yeah. online and had a look here. Yeah. They're Absolutely. amazing, aren't they? Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. So even a roundabout in the yeah, in the middle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it'd be great if they can get them, but I mean, it's the cost that's the thing, isn't it? That's mm. true. Mm. Do you have an electric car? Well, if you own one in Shetland, you may have a problem getting a recharge, as many rechargers have not been working correctly over the last week or so. Didn't Henry Ford say electric cars are okay? but they don't have a long enough extension cord. (laughs) Ho, ho. I think that's still the problem too. (gasps) In the spirit of the original true story in which 11 Women's Institute members posed naked for a charity calendar in 2003, members of the Islesburg Drama Group in Shetland are planning to bear all for a 2023 calendar to raise money for three cancer charities. 1,000 calendars will be printed with the potential to raise up to £10,000. The pandemic has been a difficult time for many in Shetland, including the local charities and their fundraising efforts. They hope the money that they raise will go towards supporting services and research, which in turn will benefit those living in the community. Mm. Well, at the moment, a web-based word game called Wordle, that's W-O-R-D-L-E, is, making the world, is taking the world by storm. Now there is a Shetland version called Wordle, W-I-R-D-L-E, which challenges the players to identify Shetland dialect words. For the uninitiated, Wordle gives players six attempts to guess a five-letter word with feedback given to each guess in the form of coloured tiles. 
Can't say I personally know much about it. <laughs> Do any of you? Yes, I've played a few games. Oh, have it's you? Very yeah. big in our house, and yeah. it's, it's quite good. <laughs> yeah, you're not doing the Shetland version though. Oh, I don't <laughs> think I could. I'd have to have the Shetland dictionary beside me. <laughs> I've had I? a go at the Shetland have version. Have you, Jan? Oh, Didn't well. do very well at all, really. <laughs> oh well, I'm a bit behind then. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Just over a hundred years ago, patrol leader Erland Mooney. Second Orkney Troop of Boy Scouts, along with patrol leader J.W.F. Marr from Aberdeen, were chosen by Sir Ernest Shackleton to accompany him on his Antarctic expedition. No greater honour could have been conferred upon the Scout movement, and Scottish Scouts in particular, than having two of their number chosen to accompany the intrepid explorer on his expedition. This was on the ship called The Quest, from 1921 to 22. Our Boy Scout, Erland Mooney, however, had to leave the expedition in Madeira due to chronic seasickness. But the wild weather continued as they went on down to South Georgia and were unable to go via South Africa. The weather was so bad. Then there was also trouble with the boilers and finally they arrived at the South Georgia whaling station on the 4th of January 1922. It was to be Shackleton's final visit, as in the early hours of the next day he had a fatal heart attack and was buried there. A memorial cairn overlooking the harbour was built by the men of the Mm. quest. Mm. Wow. Mm. Yes. He just made it to land, didn't he? he? Did. he just, yes. yes. Oh, yeah. mm. How unfortunate being chosen and getting seasick. Yes. Just <laughs> yeah. shame. Poor lad. Yeah. Um. Orkney Talking newspaper recently marked a milestone in its nearly four decade history. It celebrated recording its 2000th edition of the Orcadian. Orkney Talking newspaper began in 1983 and has grown to have more than 40 volunteers helping to collate, record, copy and dispatch audio editions of the newspaper each week for the visually impaired and other folk who might have difficulty reading a physical copy. Congratulations to you all for a job being well done. Mm, It really is, yeah. Yes. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Shetland and Orkney Connection, presented by the Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by Community Radio Plains FM 96.9. In the mid-20th century, young men from Shetland would travel south to Edinburgh and for most of them it was the first time that they had been to Scotland. They stood in their best clothes, in awe of the traffic with the black taxis and double-decker buses. They were there to sign up for the whaling operations in the South Atlantic. On the third floor of a building in George Street was the now defunct offices of the Christian Selverson Company. This company was then the largest whaling firm in Britain. Once a year in the early autumn, they began recruiting for their whaling operations in the South Atlantic. Quite often there would be a queue right down the street all waiting in hope of a job. Whaling in the Southern Ocean followed the devastation of whale stocks in the North Sea around Britain, Iceland and Norway in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Whaling had been a foundation of Shetland's economy for more than 300 years. 
It began with subsistence whaling in the 18th and 19th centuries and then developed into large-scale Arctic and Greenland hunts. Salverson began whaling in Shetland at Olna in 1904 when the company established a whaling station. That's where, in a way, they came to appreciate the Shetland men. In 1909, facing down the prospect of war, along with low whale catch numbers, the British Colonial Office established a whaling base on the sub-Antarctic archipelago called South Georgia. Salverson went south too. In the 1930s, technology had begun to make it easier to fish in Antarctic waters, and Shetland men had the skills to do it. Both world wars had brought an increased need for, for, for whale products, Margarine was made primarily from whale oil, and whale meat extract was used in stocks such as bovril. Lubricants made from whale oil were also high in high demand for use in explosives and machinery repair. Even meat and bone meal was eventually used as stock feed and fertilisers. More than half of all whales officially caught in Antarctica were hunted in the years after the Second World War. Salverson was placed in charge of operating the station named Leith Harbour by the Colonial Office. From here, the whalers hunted blue, humpback and sperm whales. Leith Harbour boasted a bakery, a hospital and a movie theatre. At this time, Britain and Norway dominated the global whaling industry. A season spent in Antarctica took place from early fall until April. Technically, each contract required men to overwinter, spend the off-season in Leith Harbour every three years. But there was never any need to enforce this rule. Men would volunteer to overwinter in droves for the extra cash, spending their time repairing machinery, cleaning and maintaining buildings. In extreme cases, some men would go close to three years without going home, stacking contracts back to back. Commercial whaling continued at Leith Harbour until 1961. The by-products born of a whale's body were necessary, valuable commodities. The mass adoption of factory ships in the 1930s changed everything about whaling and, in some cases, hastened the end of the industry itself. Factory ships usurped the need to carry whales to shore for harvest. I love how they use that word, harvest. Mm. <laughs> and worked in tandem with catcher boats, which were fast and could chase down whales and harpoon them for the factory ships to collect later. Catcher ships used wartime technology such as anti-submarine detection investigation committee radar, which tracked whale movements underwater. This did not give the whales much of a chance. No, it didn't. You know, I'm not surprised they, weren't, they were fished out. Mm. The process of butchering a whale was bloody. It included pulling a whale up onto the ship's deck by its tail and shoving it along a slipway dubbed Hell's Gates. Workers would flens the whales, separating blubber, blubber from mussels, using long curved knives. Flensed rubber was fed through a hole into the steamers below where it was melted into oil. The rest of the whale was then chopped up. Muscle and bone was mulched into meat meal and packed into barrels and sent home. Even the guts were inspected for ambergris, 
a valuable, mysterious chunk of the stomach that was used in perfume manufacture. Soon the overfishing that had depleted whales near the coasts would drastically reduce the population of blue and sperm whales in the waters surrounding Antarctica. By 1963, the British abandoned whaling in Antarctica because of the combination of overfishing and regulations had made it unprofitable. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they nearly fished them to extinction down there, as they did up in the north too. So Yes. Mm. But they're coming back now, aren't they? they are. uh, yeah. The archives hold papers and published works collected by E.S. Reed Tate, Tate was a draper in Lerwick, but his real love was literature about his native Shetland. Throughout his long career and in retirement, he collected material about the islands from every possible source. Tate's book collection was, and is, unveiled as a corpus of Shetland material. It includes the standard works about the islands, but also rare early items about Shetland from periodicals from the 18th century onwards, and also printed prospectuses and law papers from the same period. Each time he saw a reference to Shetland in a newspaper or a printed book, he clipped it out and pasted it in a scrapbook. The collection includes 30 such scrapbooks, one of them being eight inches thick and containing many thousands of items. He also collected manuscripts some of which he saved from destruction. For instance, a large body of papers of James Grieg, a lawyer in Lewick during the early 19th century. It is safe to say that if Tate had not been a collector, many documents about Shetland's history would have disappeared forever. Tate bequeathed his books and papers to the Shetland Library, and they are now preserved in the Shetland Museum and Archives. Just as well we have these people that do collecting, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm. Apparently, it was on April the 28th, 1789, on a return voyage from Tahiti, that crew members of the Bounty staged their rebellion against Captain William Bly. And of course, like so many events that shook the world, there was an Orcadian there amidst the drama. The man was midshipman George Stewart from Stromness. Indeed, it has been recorded that Stuart first met William Bly in Stromness when he returned to Britain after one of his epic voyages of exploration led by Captain Cook. Unfortunately now, the late Captain Cook having been killed in Hawaii, but this was written a year or two ago. Whatever tales the young Stuart heard from Bly could have fired his enthusiasm to pursue a naval career. Certainly he fared well enough to be selected for the expedition of the Bounty, which left Britain in 1787 to proceed to Tahiti and then from there to take breadfruit trees to the West Indies as a cheap food source for slaves. After the mutiny, Bly and crewmen loyal to him were cast to the mercy of the ocean in the ship's boat, while the mutineers, George Stewart included, returned to Tahiti in the Bounty. However, there was conjecture over Stuart's support for the mutiny, certainly when Fletcher Christian and other mutineers sailed for the sanctuary of the remote Pitcairn Islands, Stuart stayed in Tahiti, where he married the daughter of a local chief and began a family. However, in March 1791, 
Stuart's idyllic island lifestyle came to an end when he was taken prisoner by officers of HMS Pandora and thrown into irons to be returned to Britain to be tried for mutiny. Alas, on the voyage home, the Pandora was wrecked with the loss of 35 men, including George Stewart, on the Great Barrier Reef. The story goes that Stewart's wife died broken-hearted at being separated from her husband, but their daughter eventually settled in California where her descendants still live today. The White House, the Stromness home of the Stewart family, still overlooks the harbour where Bly arrived aboard HMS Resolution in 1780. And in the old Stromness kirkyard by the shore, there still lies a memorial stone to Alexander Stewart, the father of midshipman George Stewart. Mm. Mm. Yes, as I say, there's always an Orcadian in the monks too. Mm. Mm. Okay, I see that in Britain most of your COVID restrictions have been lifted. We are in the grip of Omicron at the moment, so still have a few restrictions left. We can only hope it will run its course soon. Well, once again, we have come to the end of another programme. Keep safe until next time. Cheerio. Bye. Bye. Bye.